you know, if we eventize, if there's a speaker or there's a reception or there's something that adds something, we really don't have a huge challenge getting audiences out. But when the experiences remain more passive, it does feel like certain generations are choosing a restaurant or a bar or a music event or something in lieu of going to the cinema. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition since 1920. And in this episode, we're joined by Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, a division of our company that offers editorial services for movie theaters. And this week, we're going to be covering a number of topics, including a recap of our State of the Art House panel conversation that is brought to you by this week's sponsor, Spotlight Cinema Networks. That's coming up in our feature segment. But before that, Russ, Rebecca, welcome. We've got some box office to go over, a little bit of news to just touch on before we go into the main course here, which is going to be that nice update on everything that's going on in the specialty market. Let's start, I guess, with the first part of the conversation, Another disappointing weekend at the box office. Guys, we're coming off the lowest weekend in the domestic market since mid-September. Another number one weekend, fourth in a row for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. That movie's close to 400 million domestic. It's up to 733 million worldwide. No big surprise there. The rest of the market, though, yikes. Not much going there. But Rebecca, as we've seen recently, whenever the Hollywood releases aren't performing, that opens up gaps in the calendar for event cinema to come in and steal a weekend. And we've seen that happen time and time again for Fathom Events. They did it again this weekend. Coming in at sixth place was Fathom Events release, I Heard the Bells, which is about the creation of that Christmas Carol by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. We get Christmas stuff in there. We get faith-based stuff in there. The faith-based market has really been working well for Fathom. Well, over the last few years, really, though, it's really ramped up, I think, in, in 2022. Yeah, that earned two. 2.7 million over the Thursday through Sunday weekend with the th- screen count that fluctuated a little bit, but but hovered right around a thousand screens. Another victory there for Fathom. That's a surprisingly robust screen count. It's close to a wide 1,000 plus screen count that you could have here in the market, especially considering, and Russ, we talked about this in our episode going over Steven Spielberg's filmography. The Fablemans is still out under 700 screens. So this movie from Fathom Events comes and outperforms week three of a new Steven Spielberg movie that's well-reviewed. It actually even overperformed another holdover that's been getting a good amount of notices, Bones and All, from uh, Italian director Luca Guadagnino. Good performance all in all, but uh, the specialty market not really stepping up with these expansions. Yeah, it's tough. And, you know, it's disappointing for Bones and All, and especially for Fablemans, given the nature of Fablemans and what it means to Spielberg. It'd be nice to see Universal getting behind it in a way that they're not. You know, the thing about the specialty market, especially when you talk about faith-based films, is there's a very reliable and dedicated sort of alternative marketing channels called churches. (laughs) And... (laughs) influential one would say yes you know there are a lot of ways that those movies awareness of movies that are on the faith-based circuit hit audiences in a way that is clearly not working for a movie like fablemans or bones and all you know i think i would love to talk to someone at universal about who they see as the audience for the fablemans because the marketing and the way that movie has been pushed and released tells me that I don't know that the studio even has confidence in what the audience for that movie is or what it could be. And, you know, some measure of success is based just on, you know, it's a fake it till you make it kind of thing. And Universal had this really shaky and uneven push for Fablemans. And I think it's reflected in the performance of the movie. But to be completely fair, Russ, I saw the Fablemans. It's a very well-made Steven Spielberg movie about Steven Spielberg. I mean, of course, yeah. what is the audience? It is a marketing challenge for Universal to get a personal, to call it nicely, passion project, but to call it what it is, a vanity project about a filmmaker making a movie about his own life. I have no idea how this got greenlit. It's a perfectly good film. It's a perfectly good Spielberg film. 
But if I'm working at Universal right now, I have no idea how to market this. Rebecca, what are your thoughts on this situation? Yeah, I'm on you with that, Daniel. I mean, with so many of these faith-based films, I mean, whether it's Fathom Events or another event cinema distributor, Russ, like you mentioned, they go super targeted on the marketing to the point that if you are not, I don't know, a regular churchgoer, if you're not in that sort of faith-based sphere, you would not even know... I heard the you don't even know those movies exist. You don't even know they yeah. exist, but clearly yeah. people are going out to them rather than this kind of just like, oh, release some trailers, throw some spaghetti at the wall. You know, I'm concerned about, or I'm, let's say, curious about next weekend, we have the wide release Empire of Light. That's another one where I'm not really sure who the core audience is. One thing about all of this too is, and this has come up in conversations I've had with a few other people, is that direct marketing outreach that benefits faith-based films is one big prong of this conversation. And I don't think it would be a stretch to say that studios don't have good plans for marketing movies that fall in between some of the big cracks. And maybe they never have, and there have just been other media sources that helped push those movies and those media sources no longer have the traction that they used to. There's another big part which is that the way the market works now overall, you've known for a year when Black Panther opens. If you're even vaguely interested in Black Panther, you knew when Black Panther was going to open. There's a date. You know exactly when that movie is coming. For a lot of these other movies, the calendar has shifted multiple times over the past three months. You're like, oh, that came out? That came out already? Like, It's my job to know when this stuff is coming out. And it shifts not just weekly, but daily. And there are movies now where even with Fablemans until like a week or two weeks ago, I don't know if you had just, you know, thrown me in a dark room and said, you can leave when you tell us the dates the Fablemans opens. I don't know if I could have done it. And that's what I'm supposed to be able to do. And this stuff has changed so much. It's changing all the time. And so audiences, like, A, they don't even know if this movie exists. B, they don't know where they can see it. And they don't know when they can see it. There's a total lack of communication on windowing and platforming for the consumers. I feel even cinemas and exhibitors are in the dark because journalists, as we can say right now, we totally know. Well, that's something something that comes up in the feature interview we have for this episode, the State of the Art House podcast with art house exhibitors and distributors talking about how they need more notice, especially for the specialty market. The dates keep changing. They don't have the materials. The VOD dates keep changing. It's like, how are they supposed to build an audience for things that maybe might be a little bit more kind of off the beaten path? compared to what they typically run. Those are audience pockets. Those are audience niches. And we're seeing event cinema come in and be able to hit that out of the park when they can, or specialty distributors market to that very specific audience pocket. It's a little bit tougher when the break-even mark is higher when you have someone like Timothy Chalamet in a romantic teen cannibal movie that is opening in as many screens as it can. That's a hard sell you're going to have a hard time marketing that. But there has to be a better way than what's happening right now. Hey, look, I admire the pure Carnival Barker hucksterism of opening a cannibal movie on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Chef's kiss, A plus for concept. Wonderful idea. Thank you. But, you know, it didn't work. And it didn't work because, again, the audiences you need to make that movie successful don't know that it exists. They don't know what it is. They don't know if they want to see it. And then the review, some of the poll quotes are like, this movie is gross. Not exactly <laughs> compelling to a wide audience. Compelling to me. I'm like, yes, I want to see this immediately. To our listeners, by the way, we're talking about bones and all. I'm not sure yeah. if we set that <laughs> yeah. up. What I will say is that I think most audiences need three months of seeing materials for a movie, of learning that the movie is even a movie, of getting a sense of what it is, and of knowing when it opens. And without that stuff, you face a really severe uphill battle. And for most movies, it's an insurmountable battle. I was talking to my mom the other day and the subject of Avatar The Way of Water came up. She wasn't really sure on what it was, that it was a sequel, that it had a subtitle. And granted, my mom is, you know, maybe in her late 60s. So her knowledge of upcoming releases is kind of based around television ads. But 
Avatar's been doing a lot of television ads, so that kind of caught me aback a little bit. Have have any of you guys, I mean, spoken with maybe non-film people and gotten any kind of impression on what the anticipation level is for Avatar, The Way of Water, outside of this specific niche that we're in? Not too much. I mean, I think the only conversation I can remember having about it is with my father-in-law, but he's not a movie person, but like he used to go to the movie theater multiple times a week. And that changed with pandemic because, you know, the theater near him, a B&B theater, by the way, was closed for quite some time. And he hasn't quite got back in the pattern of going in part, I think, because he's like, I'm not even sure what's playing is a thing he said. But so I've talked to him about Avatar and he's interested, but he's kind of interested in any movie like that. So I don't think he's representative of the general audience in the same way. Of course, this information is all anecdotal, but I think there's a certain value because we can get lost in this bubble of exhibition professionals, distribution professionals, journalists, working entertainment. A lot of my relatives in Mexico have asked me why they're re-releasing the original Avatar. I think there's confusion Ah. out there. I think there is confusion out there, and I think that is a marketing issue. But let's keep on going on the news here because as we're having these conversations on going wide, going limited... When does something go on streaming? When is it exclusive to theaters? A big part of that conversation is something that was in theaters for like four days, and now it's nowhere. We're talking about Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, a Knives Out sequel. Some comments here from Netflix Chief Executive Officer Reed Hastings calling the theatrical release of this movie a, quote, promotional tactic, saying, quote, we are not trying to build a theatrical business. We are trying to break through the noise, end quote. This is basically the head of Netflix saying, we really just wanted a marketing plug for this uh, streaming release, which is fine, right? They're leaving money on the table. They don't care, which is fine. But, you know, it does make me wonder, I mean, if that ever could change, and we could be looking at longer theatrical exclusivity windows for some of these Netflix titles. If we could make it a little more, you know, balanced in terms of Netflix versus cinemas. Obviously, Netflix ain't going to do it. Who has yeah, or who could have the leverage to make that happen? Is it going to be the cinemas? Is it going to be a situation like the talent, like Chris Nolan and Denis Villeneuve, you know, coming out against Warner Brothers and their day and date strategy? Obviously. You know, that has an impact for something else that we have to talk about news-wise this week. I mean, you look at Reed Hastings' comments, and frankly, they're exactly what I think all of us here on the podcast have been saying for a month and a half. They're they're, they're what Ted Sarandos, all of those have been saying. It's been very clear, and you do not have to read very deeply between the lines to see. It's like, they see the movie as a subscription driver. They see the theatrical release as a giant commercial campaign. I think we've all said this. You know, since the movie was announced to have a one week theatrical window. And that's exactly what it is. It's been very clear. And it's unfortunate, I think, for fans of the movie. It's unfortunate for audiences and for theaters that that's all Netflix is willing to do. I mean, do you think for the third Knives Out movie, if Ryan Johnson says, I want a two week window or a three week window? Well, he's asking for it, right? We've seen those comments in the press already. Ryan Johnson publicly going out saying, I want a longer theatrical run next time. Good luck, buddy. Good luck. I mean, you you cashed out, bro. Like, what do you want me to say? You could have had that with Lionsgate. You took the money. You you don't get to say. I think that's fair. I think that talent is going to have to be the ones nudging Netflix in a certain way. Because, I mean, if directors see that they're not going to get the theatrical commitments that they necessarily want, that their compatriots aren't getting that, then they're, I would imagine, you know, leave and not sign with Netflix for their future films. Like we saw Nolan jumping from Warner Brothers. So I don't know if that's going to happen. Happen. It kind of depends on how much money Netflix has to throw around, and, and they're not exactly transparent about these things. I think the other thing is this is an unprecedented situation. We have not seen this before. You know, we've seen Netflix movies play theatrical through limited exhibition deals. We've seen them play in specialty markets, primarily driving kind of award season buzz. We haven't seen this. And so I'm curious, like, it's not like this is the 10th example of Netflix, you know, putting a movie into theaters and it doing really well for a week and audiences clamoring for more. This is the first one. So, I mean, I believe what they say when Reed Hastings says that they're not trying to build a theatrical business. I believe it. But if it's a thing that keeps talent happy, do they care about having Ryan Johnson 
as a director, I honestly don't know because Netflix seems like an AI that is spiraling partially out of control. And so I don't know what they care about. I genuinely don't know what their priorities are besides driving subscribers. Driving subscribers is the priority. So we don't know how it's working. <laughs> so or how correct, it will work. Exactly. The market does, and the market has been very, very clear pushing this company to places where it didn't want to go before. Reed Hastings did not want to go to a lower priced ad supported tier. The market said you have to. And maybe that's where we get to. Maybe we get to a situation like we saw at Disney, where the market says you lost 1.5 billion on Disney Plus. You haven't even hit a billion theatrical. Well, guess what? The CEO is fired. That's what happened. Maybe we're in a situation where the market has to make those decisions. And we're seeing that come together. I think the other big piece of news that we had this week was Legendary, the production studio responsible for some of the biggest blockbusters in the world. They have dropped Warner Brothers to go over to Sony Pictures Entertainment. Guys, this is big news. And this is a relationship that we could see was beginning to fracture when Warner Brothers, during the former management put all of their titles, including the legendary films Godzilla vs. Kong and Dune, day and date during the pandemic. That was a different time that did not go over well for Legendary. But let's be clear. Legendary is fickle. Legendary was originally partnered with Warner Brothers. They bailed on Warners and went to Universal. They were with Universal for what? Three years? Max, Four years? You're, right. you're absolutely right about that. They yep, did Kong the Skull Island. Yeah. You know, and after Kong, they bailed and went back to Warner Brothers. Legendary is a power player in part because of that ownership by China's Wanda. And it's like they have a lot of money. They do these big genre movies. But I'm reluctant to say that them changing studio partnerships is indicative of a big sea change because they've done it before multiple times. And so this to me just seems very much in keeping with Legendary's personality. That makes complete sense, Russ, and thank you for that context. I mean, the issues with theatrical, I mean, they I can't imagine they helped. We do have a quote from the CEO of Legendary, Joshua Grode, who said that, quote, Sony's commitment to theatrical distribution aligns with our vision of how to best derive the most value for Legendary movies. So, I mean, maybe it comes down to a financial decision. Everything in this business, everything in any business comes down to a financial decision, but there is an alignment. Yeah, there's an alignment there with Sony, and it's not a coincidence that it's Sony, the one studio that doesn't have a streaming platform because they already have one of the largest home entertainment platforms out there with the PlayStation 5. It makes sense here. It makes sense. I think that quote puts this into context where there was clearly a tension between Legendary and Warner Brothers in the past. Russ, as you explained, it's not unheard of for Legendary to make these decisions. They've made them in the recent past before. It happened once again, you know, and I think it's a hard blow for Warner Brothers Discovery, asked Warner Brothers Discovery. They've had nothing but hard blows this year, my God. Yeah, they've been cleaning up the mess that AT&T left them time and time again. They've stepped into some punches as well. I think it's fair <laughs> to say some very, uh, some very easily avoidable situations. But right now it's been clean up on aisle five for Warner Brothers under new management and this is the latest example, losing one of their biggest partners for big, big movies. Now, Legendary still working with Warner Brothers on existing titles, including Dune Part 2 coming up next year. There's no question it's a big deal for Warner Brothers. And yeah, you're right. It's obvious that putting two big Legendary titles into that streaming day and date release pattern with Godzilla versus Kong and the first Dune movie was probably the blow that ended this partnership. And it, it's too bad for Warner Brothers that they couldn't make better decisions. But like you say, the AT&T mess was, I think, bigger than anybody really realized unless you were working for one of those companies. And I think this is all part of a just massive realignment when we're coming out of the pandemic on how things are going to work out. We've been talking about just how tenuous the situation is for a lot of these executives at these big media companies, including ones that own specialty distributors. And at the other end of the spectrum, as Rebecca found out in the panel conversation she held with a number of exhibitors and a specialty distributor last week, 
it's hard to make sense of how to run your business when there are so many things up in the air. Rebecca, can you give us a preview of the uh, panel conversation we're about to go to? Because this was a great, great initiative that we did once again with our colleagues at Spotlight Cinema Networks, bringing executives from distribution and specialty exhibition to talk about the art house market as a whole. Yeah, Daniel, this conversation that we had last week was with uh, Christopher Escobar of the Plaza Theater in Atlanta, Chris Hamel, Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio, Lila Meta Connor, who is a member of the board of the newly relaunched Art House Convergence, and Clement Salandier of Kino Lorber, which is a distributor that has obviously worked very closely with Art House cinemas throughout the pandemic era. And uh, it was a little bit deja vu at some points here because a lot of the problems that we spoke about in last year's state of the Art House webinar, they still exist today, specifically in terms of the relationship between exhibitors and distributors. Exhibitors want to have more flexibility in when and how and how much they play certain films. They want to have more time to prepare for those films. On the distribution side, it's not so easy to meet all of those demands, but there's got to be some kind of sea change is the impression that I got from listening to these panelists. Really interesting conversation. So let's go over to that recording of highlights from that panel conversation that Rebecca Pauly hosted last week, State of the Art House, presented by our colleagues at Spotlight Cinema Networks. But first, a message from our sponsor, Spotlight Cinema Networks, coming up right after this break. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. I know 2023 is not quite here. We still have one month left to go. It's, it's a pretty important month, especially for art house theaters considering award season and everything. Chris Hamel, what over this past year has really worked for your audiences and helped to bring people back? The pandemic made it more challenging, but I think the things that were working for us pre-pandemic are working for us now. You know, I think mm -hmm. uh, the most successful program we hosted this year is we did a retrospective of A24 films for their 10-year anniversary that lasted a couple of months. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the audience turnout was terrific and also our membership and donor base grew, you know, during that program. So, you know, I think the interesting, compelling, innovative, programmatic initiatives that we've become known for continue to work pretty well. Great. And Christopher Escobar at the Plaza in Atlanta, what are the films or the programming that's worked for you so far in 2022? I would say, echoing off of Chris, it's been a mix of some of the things that have worked for us before in the past. At the Plaza, we do a, a pretty good mix of new art house releases and repertory. And for us, you know, it's been the things that have been eventized in some way that have been special. Those have been especially the highlights and the remark and the you know high points for us. So things that we do with local programming partners that have some kind of live component. And that live component can be as simple as, you know, someone giving a you know, special introduction. It could be a live performance beforehand, that sort of thing, but something that just makes it a little bit more special. And that's been true if it's been a new film or it's been a repertory film in a way that's eventized and makes it special. And Lila and Clements, obviously you have experience working with a lot of different art house cinemas, kind of a wider span across North America. In terms of Kino Lorber, what's 2022 been like for you? What has been the hits? Well, first, maybe I should say it's been challenging, definitely challenging. There is a, a true lack of screen dedicated to art house films, true art house films. But I don't want to complain too much. Uh, and I have to say we had two films that we were very happy with the success that they had was uh, Neptune Frost, uh, this incredible sci-fi Afropunk theme from Rhonda, you know, uh, 
was a lot to bring in the States and it did well. And it did well because the programmers were really into that theme. They were, they were loving it. Then they were, they wanted to give it a chance. And there's a lot of grassroots that could be done with this theme, which I think also was uh, why the theme was the way successful, the way it was. So yes, there was this one and also hit the road by Jaffa Panapanahi the son of Jafar Panahi, which was a lovely film, very supported by the press. And this is the kind of film that, you know, you laugh and you cry at the same time. It's funny that Clements mentioned Neptune Frost, because if we're talking about specific titles, that one did well for us. And I'm yes. kind of especially proud of that one as a pride point, because we were also showing the new Jurassic Park film at the same time. And <laughs> Neptune Frost outperformed the new Jurassic Park. So that's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Leela, I mean, Art House Convergence is kind of the hub for Art House exhibitors in North America. You're on the board. I mean, just kind of a macro view. What are the Art House films that have helped bring people back to the cinemas? Yeah, we just had a committee meeting before this call. And since I don't run a cinema right now, more of a film series where I am, the consensus was everything everywhere all at once for the cinemas that were on the call with me. Ben Delgado from Film Scene in Iowa City, he said that um, it was their highest grossing film of all time. And it, it actually above Parasite. So interesting information there. Um, and everyone tended to agree that that was their biggest grossing film, but also that, again, agreeing with Chris that the community events, the one-off series, the partner events seem to be doing really well in addition to that. Obviously, as exhibitors, you have more films to program than you did in 2021 and in 2020. Fewer films out there than uh, before the pandemic, obviously. From a programming perspective, how do you approach that balance of what have been the challenges this year in terms of just filling your screens that you have? I think we've had plenty of films to fill our screens. I mm -hmm. think, you know, we continue to try to program the most diverse mix possible. And so sometimes that means you're programming a film that's, you know, going to pay the utility bill that month. But we still remain, I think, committed to ensuring that films made, you know, independent films made around the country or the world, you know, still have a place in our community. And if we don't take that responsibility seriously, I think it's challenging to expect the audiences to. With the amount of options they have, curation feels more important than ever. And I, I know the other people on this call and, and my team take that really seriously. I love that you said that, Chris, and that that's what you do at your cinema. I think I come, my experience comes from the film festival side of things. And I know just having talked to like some of the Sundance programmers, like they have more than 11,000 short film submissions this year. So like coming from the other side of it, it's so interesting to hear cinemas talking about not having enough content when on this side of it, there's so much content. And so my question becomes then what is the disconnect and where is the gatekeeping to cinemas of all this potentially probably 40% of those shorts were good, right? So like where, you know, who's, where, where is that disconnect there? On the one hand, you hear people say, oh, there's not enough film. And then on the other hand, it's the film's there. It's just not the sort of thing that you would have programmed before. I'm sure Neptune Frost wouldn't have played those in many theaters, say, if it were released in 2019. How do you approach that from I guess, a marketing standpoint. On the marketing end, I think, you know, well, the way we can make up for not having a large marketing budget is having a larger marketing window. That kind of thing allows us to utilize our own channels on social media and web and email and that sort of thing and get titles that maybe aren't on people's radars on their own and get them interested, excited, anticipated for that. That's always been the challenge for us when there's a film that we've wanted but aren't sure if we're going to be able to get or not or something like that. And you know, we don't find out until the last minute that ends up making a much harder, you know, time getting people's awareness of it. So if the film does a good enough job getting awareness and we happen to play it, okay, then great. But if the film doesn't have awareness on its own and we don't have enough time to get people interested in it, that makes it a hard sell. Conversely, when we've had films, so for instance, I think part of why Neptune Frost did well for us is we had carried it when we hosted Sundance here. And so it's almost a little bit of a earlier blip in creating some awareness for it. So, you know, there are ways to overcome lower budgets for marketing, but it means time. Sort of fast, cheaper, good pick too, right? So. Clemence, well, what would be your response to that? Mm. Everyone would like to have a, a ton of time and I'm sure on the distributor side, you'd like to be able to give. 
yes so, so much time but like that doesn't always work out <laughs> I would imagine no, and um especially, is it changing I mean is I mean especially we, try, we really try to put awareness of those themes very early in the process sometimes it's uh, so early that we do not have the material uh, ready uh, for the theaters we also have a lot of themes and we have repertory themes we release and we have first runs but it's true that I agree with uh, Chris that the the fact that the film can be announced early, that can be put on the website early, that where the trailer is also announcing the film on the website, it's really important. And at least, so the minimum we're trying to get material is four weeks in advance of the release. But I try to push everyone to have it earlier than that. Mm. But yeah, and we do also on our side, we do have a grassroots and a marketing team and we try to compensate the lack of our budget by trying to be as flexible as possible, as serviceable as possible. So if you are needing specific visuals, we will try to make it for you. It's just that we need a lot of communication and that's also, you know, a lot of work and we are all understaffed. So sometimes it's hard, but I think you can rest assured that whatever we cannot provide you in terms of dollars, we will try to provide you in terms of sweat and uh, energy. A couple of my Art House board member compatriots were talking about specifically that window that seems like maybe now post-pandemic sort of dates are shifting or they're not getting answers or people aren't, I'm sure it wasn't you, Clemence, are, you know, they're like, we can't market a film with only two weeks notice. So I think that like, they seem to be having problems specifically with that sort of last minute turnaround. For Gateway, I mean, what's the situation been like with you working with a variety of distributors and trying to get the films that you know will connect with the audiences and getting them with enough time to actually effectively let people know they're playing? Well, I think it's more important continually to promote and market the program as a whole instead of the individual pieces, which does give us an opportunity to overcome some of the date changes. I do think the studios aren't moving their titles the way they were in 2020 and 2021. And distribution partners that we have, like Kino, they're also pretty stable. Once you have a date, you can count on it. But I do think in the middle, there's a lot of movement still. I mean, we had date moves this week from, you know, what I would call traditional art house films or films that are sort of towing the line between commercial and art house. And I, I think the other thing that's happening, and, and Christopher was speaking about this, you know, from when the film is opening, but also we don't know when the VOD dates are. So those seem to be constantly in flux. And so when we really work hard to market something and it's working, but it's not necessarily working at the commercial cinemas or at the national level, it starts to close on us from the other side. So it's really challenging for the people working in marketing and publicity at the film center to, you know, to know where to put the limited resources we do have. Yeah. Art houses, they tend to be more connected with their audiences than a multiplex. You're more likely to like know who your audience is on a first name basis and recognize them when they come in or when they haven't been in. How much of your audience, like what percentage would you say is back from pre-pandemic? Like what's the that last segment that has not been enticed back to your cinemas yet? And what do you think could be done to change that? What I was hearing from yeah. uh, fellow uh, people who operate cinemas is about 65 to 70% of their audiences are back. My thinking is like, you know, I, I read all those emails that come out about audiences coming back and how what it's going to take. And I think we need to start thinking about the psychology around what's going to take to bring in younger audiences and attract those audiences to our cinema. I mean, it's great. So we, of course, want to welcome back the patrons, but we need to really be thinking about how we're going to invest in the next generation of cinema goers. Yeah. You want to not spend all your resources on that 25% instead get new people in. Christopher, that 65, 75%, does that kind of hold true for the plaza or? So for us, it's a weird mix of dreams. So on one hand, our large primary auditorium is, you know, maybe about 80% of pre-pandemic. On the other hand, we just enclosed our balcony and made two additional small auditoriums. And so we have three screens now. And the additional business that those two additional screens has put us at 
you know, above double pre-pandemic levels, you know, usually about two and a half times pre-pandemic levels. And so what's interesting is there is still a holdout of people who were coming regularly that are not back. And yet we have a whole bunch of other people that we have before. So it's this weird mix of extremes. And I think in some ways, you know, the plaza can be an anomaly. We traditionally don't have an older audience. It's primarily a diverse but younger audience under 45, largely, not like 25 to 45. But it's interesting because there are films in the market that can do well with that age group, but they won't, you know, I, I offered the Jurassic Park example that won't necessarily do well for us, but then there are films that do really well for us that even if they're playing in the market, maybe, you know, we're, we're in bounds above what other folks do. So it's, it's an it's interesting example of kind of listening to not only what your audience wants to see, but what they want to see from you. And I mean, how do you parse that? How do you figure that out? Especially if you have all these people who are coming to the cinema for the first time. Yeah, I mean, we do we do look at what some of the responses uh, on social media when we when we are more posting things and what, how excited people are about things like that. We also end up running a lot of trailers that you know, just kind of mentioning earlier about you're playing a trailer of a film you are interested in showing, not sure if you're going to be able to show it. And sometimes because that's with an obligation with the, with the distributor and seeing what the response is and excitement, anticipation of folks to see those films, you know, yeah, and how, how they're asking. So it's part of it is, is on the data side, on what we're seeing on social, what we're seeing traffic on the website. Part of it is, you know, is gathering the kind of anecdotal evidence of what our folks are saying in person in the theater and, or in comments on social media or that sort of thing. And then part of it is, you know, we have a pretty diverse staff and they have a, you know, they kind of represent a broad span of the interests of our audience as well. And so kind of using them as sort of a little bit of a focus group about what they're especially excited about. And so it's it's not one answer. It's, it's a little bit of all of it. Chris Hamill, what is the situation like uh, for the Gateway? I think similar to what Leela and Christopher already discussed, the percentages Leela shared from other venues are pretty consistent with ours as well. I do think the sort of habits, attitudes, and expectations of our audience has changed pretty dramatically during the pandemic. So I think what we've observed, uh, both from looking at data and anecdotally, is that the sort of cinephile audience is pretty much back. The people who can't imagine not watching Neptune Frost or The Fablements, like there's some quite a bit of quite a bit of difference in scope and scale between those two films, but there's a cinephile audience that they want to see those films in a cinematic environment with an audience. And from what we've observed, they're pretty much back and in some cases are going more than they were before the pandemic. But I do think the the less frequent moviegoer, it's pretty challenging to reach them right now, you know, because they're not engaging with our social media or our website or our email marketing on a regular basis. And even if we had an endless budget to go try to find them, it's pretty hard to do that film to film. So to sort of recap, I really think we're trying to diagnose how these habits and expectations have changed. I think we're doing pretty well with the cinephiles, but I do think we're missing that 35%-ish that Lilo was talking about. I think those aren't the people that came every week or every other week, or like we see in the convergence surveys where the average moviegoer is going 20, 25 times a year. I think it's the ones that go four or five times a year that really are back in our cinemas. I want to jump on something that you said, Chris, I think it's interesting because another one of our board members runs the Be Real Black Cinema Club in New York City and in Philly. And part of her mission is bringing together young, not even cinephiles, but young Gen Z and millennials and bringing them to events around the community, which is super cool. But she said that even those young people, it's really hard to get back to the cinema they would, they'll go to a bar or to a party, but they won't go to the movie theater. So it's some kind of community that people are craving, I guess, that they feel they can find at a bar. <laughs> well, I think for a lot of people, they think about the movie going experience as sort of passive. And I think it's what Christopher was speaking about earlier. Like to get those audiences to re-engage, we have to make the experiences more active and where they have a voice in what's happening. They have a part of the event. And so... I think that's interesting, Leela, what you're speaking about. And interestingly enough, Christopher's audience and my audience are actually pretty similar. It's more of like a young professional audience than a, maybe a traditional art house audience. And we've experienced those same things he's talking about. 
you know, if we eventize, if there's a speaker or there's a reception or there's something that adds something, we really don't have a huge challenge getting audiences out. But when the experiences remain more passive, it does feel like certain generations are choosing a restaurant or a bar or a music event or something in lieu of going to the cinema. The amount of time people have been staying in the auditorium or in the lobby is so much longer now. And, and they're talking with both the people they came with and talking with people they meet or run to or people they, they already know but see at the screening. And this is true for special events and it's been true for you know, for, for even more regular screenings where we have a lot of offering. I think, you know, what Lila was mentioning is that it's that social aspect that's the difference between do I stay home or, you know, because they can't, they can't get that social aspect in the cinemas. And I think that's, or not, you know, at home and they, they can only get it at the cinemas in terms of around a movie screen. And so I think that's, we got to, you know, remember that we are far greater than we have a TV than you do at home and a nicer sound system. <laughs> We're a place for convening and a place for community. And so from the things that Chris is mentioning you know, that happen in the auditorium, to just creating a set of place and escape that is better than people's living room, better than some, you know, random bar. I think that's part of what we offer as well, right? Is that sense of community and that sense of experience. And so everything we can do to facilitate that both directly and sort of indirectly, I think is what's going to be helpful to us. For us, another, you know, just speaking of, kind of other elements, as a very different example, we installed the 35 and 70 millimeter in 2020 we had not had it for a number of years and, and were able to put this system in in anticipation for the tenant release. And while tenant, you know, did well for us for a couple of weeks, you know, since then, you know, some of our highest grossing films have been ones that we've been doing in 35 and 70 millimeter. Now for us, we're 80, you know, three year old cinema. So, you know, we like to bring back old and make it new again and things like that. So, but that's been another thing people can't get at home. Right. And so any and every way that, that we can differentiate ourselves from people's living room. And we don't do those screenings a lot. When we do those titles, we'll show them two, three times at the most. So there is this... So if you if you don't buy that ticket, then... Right, right. And it's too bad. Of, oh, okay. <laughs> Next time. Now, interestingly enough, you know, Atlanta tends to be a very last-minute buying town, and, and that is even more the case now. But yeah, there is this sense of you get it now or you don't get it at all. Clemence, from a distributor perspective, I mean, aside from doing whatever you can do to make sure these art house theaters have the materials they need and the time to use them, how can distributors help exhibitors and work with them to kind of create these, you know, events? Yeah. Obviously, like you're the communication point between the talent. Yes. Well, I have a good example. We participated to a silent movie day which was, uh, I, th I think it was in September, September or uh, the month of September. And we offered discounted price on all our of our silent repertory films. And because it was a single day and there was, you know, an organization behind it, I think it did very well. Another one that uh, worked well in terms of eventized was uh, Nosferatu. It was the 100th anniversary. We had a lot of screenings all over the States, and there were a few that had um, a live orchestra, and that really did very well also. I think, uh, just to give you an idea, I think we grossed over around $100,000 just with Nosferatu's special event. So it was really a success for us. So much of the conversation about how do you get people to come back to the cinemas is about premium formats. Like, how can it be bigger? How can it be Dolby Atmos or ScreenX or just panoramic or all the things that you really, really, really can't get at home? It sounds like the art house version of that maybe is those events. That's what Chris said. It's like getting people out of their, what, what can you do to complete with their living room or a bar or social experience. At the end of the day, we're all just competing for people's time. Like two and a half hours of somebody's day is, you know, is not just us competing for that. It's every other place that has customers and patrons. I mean, I also didn't mention, but I'm on the board of directors for the Vidiots Foundation, and we just launched our membership. Vidiots has been under, a, we've launched a capital campaign in 2019 and then the pandemic happened, but we're very close to announcing our opening, which will be in early 2023 in Eagle Rock in North LA, Northeast LA. But a lot of that programming is community and partnership focused. And I think that that is really a stronghold of the Art House Cinema and the Art House Cinema experience. 
you were just shy of five years, you headed the Film Festival Alliance. Obviously, like in especially, you know, for, for cinema in general, but especially for art houses, the festival circuit is so important in terms of filling that pipeline. You know, are film festivals back to where they were before, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of reimagining that we can do in these times. I think Chris mentioned that earlier. There's a kind of a reckoning right now. And some film festivals seem to be faring pretty well. Others, you know, we've seen in the last like week, a couple of festivals closing down and are pausing on, on their 2023 programming. Like we were talking about this before, I think it's actually very smart if you, it's better to strategize and be really smart about what you're planning versus just doing it for the sake of doing it, because that's what you've always done, especially with a film festival. You're not running a brick and mortar, probably. But I do think it's really important that festivals and cinemas develop those partnerships in their communities. And I think most of the folks on this call and definitely in the Art House Convergence community have that. But I think going forward, it's going to be really important for festivals and cinemas to work together. That uh, touches on how important it is to interact with your community, whether that's your local film festivals or just like local businesses. Have you had success with that sort of community building, Chris Hamel? I mean, what's been your experience like with that post-pandemic? Well, it was difficult pre-pandemic. <laughs> I mean, I think <laughs> most art house peers I know have had that as an agenda item for the whole time they've been in the job. And, and I, I think some of the same challenges we have now we had then. We don't always know the exact dates and we don't always know the exact availabilities. And so even when you find the local partner group that's interested in your film, there's a lot of coordination involved to get them to your location and then do a screening. I think post-pandemic, there's actually maybe enhanced interest. It seems like there are more people than ever who are interested in partnering with us. But some of the challenges we're all experiencing on the labor side, including these partner groups makes the coordination of those types of activities maybe a little more challenging than they were before the pandemic. Christopher, in terms of that community involvement that's so important to keep our houses going, yeah, have you gotten yeah, more so interest we, in that? Yeah, and for us, the community involvement programming partner model, I mean, not too different from, in some ways, the promoter model that a lot of clubs use. You know, we've had an arrangement with a few different other programming and, you know, community entities where they're not renting the theater, but instead they're getting a percentage of ticket sales for an event that we partner with that is co-branded and thematically presented in a way that kind of overlines with their mission. And they're not one-offs. These are ones that have a regular cadence. It might be quarterly, it might be monthly, you know, and if it's monthly, it's the same Wednesday of the month or the same Thursday or what have you. And those have been successful for us pre-pandemic, and we have only more of those now. So, and they're ones that, you know, that are both, you know, nonprofits and for-profits, they're companies, they're publications, it's a whole variety. And they speak to different genre interests and different community interests. And some of them will bring a really, for instance, uh, one of the new partners that we're very excited about is called E-Division. And it's with a restaurateur who, who makes this kind of nine course meal that, is pre that she prepackages and their tastes inspired by the movie and you eat them at select times during the movie. It's really fun. And again, that's something that is, you know, very different from an experience people get at home. It's movies that people recognize. These are all repertory titles, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we have even more and more programming partners than we had ever had. But for us, yeah, kind of to what Chris was mentioning, because of the labor issues, like it's a little less interesting to just do these one-off things. Like we're interested in ones that can, can kind of create a framework and it's repeatable and can establish a cadence and grow an audience. And so even when we're trying them, we, we want to do at least three attempts to really have a sense of if that worked. And so, yeah, so we're excited that there's now a newfound interest of kind of thinking outside of the box and doing things in a way that, you know, brings folks together. Looking forward to 2023, what are the films that you guys are most excited about, both, you know, award season and beyond? And in terms of award season, it's very important for our house films. Do you have any predictions about what could really stand out? What do you think is going to be the next Everything Everywhere All at Once, let's say? Everything Everywhere All at Once was so anomalous for so many of us that, mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to replicate that kind of success. You know, award season, I'm one of those people who likes to win my Oscar poll, so I don't, I don't want to say too much, but it, it does feel like starting to round into place. It seems like Fableman's, you know, Banshees of Inisherin, Tar, and, you know, maybe Women Talking are going to be, you know, mm -hmm. the... Films that are people are going to be really buzzy about here in the and I think everything everywhere by the way I think will be a contender when the, when the nominations come out in January. You know, there's a lot of I think you know exciting films coming out from 
you know, proven filmmakers here in the, in the next 180 days. So you know, after Sundance, we have a better sense of what the independent and the new voices are going to be. So, but I have no doubt there'll be a, a whole new set of filmmakers and films that we can look forward to. Yeah, I'll be excited as along with what Chris said about seeing what's at Sundance, seeing what's at a lot of the regional festivals. I think there's a lot of opportunity for discovery from these regional festivals that I think that maybe art house cinemas, maybe there's a way that they're playing more fair from festivals or there's a discovery element that patrons can find at the art house, which would be really cool. I just want to say from the art house convergence perspective, you know, going back to that idea of community, we are, as this new board elected in September, all very excited about the possibilities of what art house convergence can be and how we can support these questions and these, you know, the programmers and all the people that come together to make the art house cinema world go round. So I just, I think there is a lot of opportunity. And I, again, I keep going back to this idea of like rethinking, you know, the way everything is done. And I think, you know, the dangerous words of, because that's the way we've always done it, we have to be looking forward um, and we can't be relying on old models. Yeah. Christopher, upcoming films that you're looking forward to? And to Lilo, to what you said, I mean, not uh, just kind of relying on the status quo. What do you want to see change in 2023 that, you know, how do you want to see the system kind of be revamped? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of titles and, yeah, and I mean, aside from, from what came out of Sundance and what, there's some really great films that are currently under consideration for the Atlanta Film Festival, so I can kind of speak from that side, serving as the executive director, that, you know, we're always excited to see how they fare during the Atlanta Film Festival to see ones that, you know, clearly there's an interest for locally, it makes sense for us in the summer and the fall and going But in terms of kind of large studio titles that are already on our, you know, radar, I think for us, I feel like this is a good example of, of ones that would do well with us. But I think Barbie, you know, horror is a big one for us, especially if it's if it's like campy or smart in some way. So like the Winnie the Pooh film, that's like seems absurd. But then uh, Dune Part Two, I think those are ones that on the kind of larger studio side, I would expect could do well for us. But in terms of things I would like to see do well, you know, honestly, I think as we're, you know, opening things up, I kind of feel like, and this could be a little, you know, controversial, but I think the idea of clean runs and minimum commitments end up stifling creativity and flexibility with cinemas. And I think, you know, if, if we can really want cinemas to survive, I think we really, you know, not to sound weird, but the solution here is sort of capitalism and free market. Like we need to let cinemas be able to show these titles as much or as little as the demand merits and so you know when there's the expectation of these commitments of you got to play the movie for two three four weeks or more and two three four times a day i mean that ends up you know especially for a smaller art house and with fewer screens that ends up being a really kind of difficult position to be in if we kind of let the market kind of decide how many times that movie wants to be seen by that audience on a week by week basis, those cinema, you know, make those decisions. I think that's part that flexibility is something that at the end of the day doesn't, you know, we're not talking about having radically different terms or things like that, but that sort of flexibility is really what will allow cinemas to be a lot more responsive to what their audience wants. Mm. Oh, I will echo that I also heard the same thing from several Art House Convergence colleagues, you know, that the minimum guarantee is really like hard for them. And so, you know, paying a screening fee, even if it's a, you know, more, you're paying more on the screening fee than you are on the minimum guarantee, it allows them to do exactly what you said, Chris, and be profitable and sustainable. Yeah, and as a distributor point of view, I mean, we are trying to be as flexible as possible. As you know, I mean, we, we are not necessarily asking for weak runs if there is no use for it. But what I've been, um, you know, the, the minimum guarantee for us is, is just a way to survive also because, you know, it's a lot of work. There's cost attached to every booking. So we need a minimum guarantee. But what I was thinking is also now that we are with DCP files, um, there is no reason why a theater would, would want to show a film, the same film for a whole month, but just once a day or once a week. You know, there is ways, there are ways maybe to, make um, an audience aware of the film by keeping it longer and only showing it one single time, the same time. And yeah. that would not be a problem for us at all. We would be totally um, interested in, in trying that, but that has not been yet, uh, I, I don't think that has not been explored so much. Mm -hmm. 
and this is it, I'm kind of getting a sense of deja vu here because these are things that make so much sense. You know, we were talking about them state of the art house webinar last year. Has there been any progress this year as things normalize a little bit in terms of coming to that common ground in terms of evolving that relationship with the distributors to where you can like you know what your audience wants and you know what's going to work better for you screening wise than someone who's like never been to your cinema. I'll take that one. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Again, people like Clemence and Kino have always been people we know we can work with if we want to get a film to our market. And sometimes that is a clean screen, you know, for weeks at a time. Sometimes it's one-offs, sometimes it's split runs. But from both the terms perspective that Christopher was talking about or the requirements, it doesn't feel like it's getting easier. It feels like it's getting a little harder. And I do think it's tricky because again, the windows are closing so quickly that, you know, we're being asked to hold these films. And then before our required run is even expired, they're already on VOD. <laughs> so it's really tricky for us with, you know, those of us who are trying to have sort of a hybrid programmatic model where we're playing both commercial and independent. The one thing that everybody was talking about before, which is what we'd like to see change is, you know, I wish we had more access to undistributed films. You know, I wish there was a way when we see a film, because I'm also a film festival person too, and we yeah. see great films every year. There's so many like, great films you see at film festivals, and then it's like, oh, I want to recommend these to people. They play at our film festivals, like the ones that I'm involved <laughs> with personally. But it's really challenging to know how or have the capacity to give those films an opportunity if they don't get picked up for distribution. So, you know, maybe an Art House Convergence bullet point might be trying to help democratize that process a little bit. And if Christopher's mm -hmm. wish list comes true and there's a little bit more flexibility, then we could find space for those films in our programs. There are two programs, even three programs, I think, that are, one is a uh, Europa Cinema, the other one is Kino Germany Now, and the other one is Young French Cinema. And they do, it's organizations that are really trying to show films that have not been distributed in the States and have them shown with a, I think it's um, either a flat fee or a small flat fee or something. So there are organizations that are doing this, but it's true, it's limited. And if you go directly with a sales agent, they're going to try to get as much money as possible as they can. So yeah, that's tricky. But yeah, you can always, especially with Kino, because we have a lot, we buy a lot of films. If there is any films that you haven't seen and you would uh, recommend, we could always consider it to have it available. And yeah, that could, could be a possibility. If I can offer, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Kino be again, the first to step out and and be out of the box like this. But, you know, it might be interesting to create, you know, something that I think is almost being all but suggested directly here, but maybe a, a pathway where film festivals and distributors can work more closely together. You know, in some ways, a lot of us serve as as sort of aggregators. For instance, there's a number of film festivals that are Academy Award qualifying. And so the Academy of Motion Picture says, hey, this list of film festivals, we trust you guys to kind of help us narrow down some of the ones for us to consider. You know, so many distributors are always looking under the same rocks, frankly, in terms of acquisitions. And so if maybe there can be, I think in part of that reason is part of why, while there has been some progress made on the kind of representation and inclusion, it's worth, I don't think we've seen the progress that we'd all like to see. And so I think if there can be some sort of partnership with distributors that think outside the box like Kino and film festivals, especially regional film festivals where so many of us are premiering or, or doing the U.S. premiere or otherwise of these films and they can just say, hey, why don't you send me the titles that have the top 10 titles or top 20 titles that have performed at your festival in your market and we'd love to you know consider that as a nomination for us to consider for acquisitions or some sort of open dialogue or channel and then that way it does end up solving part of this challenge of films that can do well and resonate well with audiences perhaps don't have as recognizable names but have performed well in certain market and film festivals can always be the the test for that you know without cannibalizing what the commercial opportunity is there and create some new you know, opportunities for new voices and new films and, and a whole new kind of means because you know, obviously distributors can't be everywhere at once and certainly not everywhere <laughs> all at once, um, but there can be a partnership forged between the film festivals and the distributors. And then the third part of that is obviously the art houses. And for many of us, 
the art house and the film festival can be one in the same or are rather closely aligned. So I feel like there's, you know, there's an important piece there that I think only distributors that think outside the box like Kino could possibly bring to the equation. Lila, I mean, you work with our Hearts Convergence, you run a nomadic mama film, kind of a nomadic film festival type of situation. And then you obviously have a ton of experience, you know, film festivals. What are your thoughts on that as someone whose experience kind of spans? Yeah, it's funny, actually. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I think it's a really good idea. I think it's a great way for, you know, as we talked about, like festivals have, are sort of this discovery platform within their communities. And why shouldn't there be crossover and support for the filmmakers at the cinemas as well? So I totally, totally agree. And um, we'll keep on thinking about it. And that about does it for this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. A big thanks to our sponsors, Spotlight Cinema Networks, for their support putting this panel together and to our panelists coming in and giving those insights on the state of the art house market today. Before we sign off, another big thanks to Rebecca Pauly and Russ Fisher for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by The Box Office Company in collaboration with Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. Join us next week when Russ and I speak about James Cameron movies for an hour and also say some things about the upcoming release of Avatar, The Way of Water. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye.